welcome to episode 47 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And this week we're looking at the Melbourne classic Death in Brunswick. I'll be sharing my thoughts on Amy Schumer's vehicle I Feel Pretty. We'll open the Cultural Capital film diary. And Anders might share some thoughts on A Quiet Place. But first, one of the highlights of Acme's current season of films written by recent Oscar winner James Ivory, Morris. Dreamy had a friend, someone to last your whole life. This is Maurice Hall. Welcome to Pendleton, Mr. Wall. By continuing like this, you and I are risking everything we have. Our families, our names. I don't even about name. Morris is Merchant Ivory's film adaptation of a novel by E.M. Forster which tells of Morris Hall, played by James Wilby, a young man in Cambridge and his romantic and sexual awakening. In typical James Ivory fashion, Morris tells a story of love and lovers inhibited by society's strict repressions and judgmental outlook. It does this not by overly dramatising its character's transgressions, for instance, when Morris intends to remain true to his gay identity when his ex-love Clive, played by Hugh Grant, submits to heterosexual married life, but by focusing on the slower, quieter moments. Merchant Ivory's trait, and one that makes their film so beautifully painful, is to depict scenarios in which their characters could be happy if they would just say what they were feeling. However, whether because of social decorum or social and legal requirements, many do not, and in Morris this leads to hurt and unhappiness. Morris, the film, does have some romantic closure, at least for its main character, But the lasting impact for me is the final look on Hugh Grant's face, face fallen and full of regret, his wife looking on calm and happy. This will be his future and he knows it. Anders, Mm. do you feel like this film has changed your life forever? (laughs) That's a big question. Yeah, in a way. um, I totally agree with you on that final shot. And in fact, I wanted to um, maybe come back to that as well. And also the final narrative resolution for um, Morris too, because there's some very interesting ways that one can interpret that ending. But um, I agree entirely actually with what you said there. I think what makes this beautiful is it is, and interesting is that it is a merchant ivory film, but with this, with, yeah, homosexuality at the centre of it and those social conventions being the things that make characters uh, act in certain ways as they say in Call Me By Your Name, is it better to speak or to die? Anyway, I think this is a really beautiful, quite an interesting film. It's set in this sort of rarefied men's world of the Oxbridge elite, which is often coded in literature and film as a sort of, as a homosexual kind of world, you know, whether it be through hazing or as in this film, you know, a bunch of foppish young men on boats obsessing over (laughs) beauty and love as depicted in the Greek classics um, with their male mentors. There's a lot of that sort of world in the first half of the film. It's sort of divided, I think anyway, into two quite distinct halves following these two romantic interests of the main character. Um, So, yeah, into this setting arrives um, Morris, played by James, will be who we first see in this very curious opening sequence on a windswept beach where he's he's sort of he's grown up fatherless um if i recall and the, his teacher sort of takes him aside they're on a school excursion um he's like 11 or 12 or something and his teacher sort of takes him aside from the other kids and like gives him the sex talk on this beach 
which is very it's such an odd way to start the film and it begins i mean already this idea of other of transgressing norms or not is introduced because they he they draw is it a penis? I can't remember. The act of the, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. On the on the beach, and then they sort of leave it for the water to lap up. But of course, the other kids run over there. So it's I, already from the start. It's I think yeah. it's a yeah, it's a strange ending. But coming back to it, kind of knowing what the rest of the film was, it's it's quite perfect. I think because well, number one is it sets up this expectation that everyone's going to get married and everyone is heterosexual, yeah. which obviously it's he's not. Um, and secondly, it suggests because the the teacher is is saying this is what you can do, but he's not using any real terms. You know, he calls yeah. like he uses the word I don't know PP or whatever. Oh, no, he uses Latin terms. Latin terms, it, almost so exclusively. Right. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, it's a great yeah. distancing effect. Um, yeah, but he still like avoids, and he still is very clear in saying like this is a thing that no one can talk about. So yeah. don't ever mention it ever again that we had this conversation. Don't mention it to your mother. Like don't let anyone else know that we did this. Don't ever talk about this in front of people. Again, just like suggesting that we need to repress all of this about exactly. ourselves um, um, and all of these relations, both from Morris at a very young age and also for us in the audience seeing, you know, just like I'm sure we all know what this is like because this is what we're also conditioned to do. Yeah. But, you know, saying that this world is very much like this. Totally. Yeah, and it's associating sex in his 11-year-old mind with men and with this idea that there's almost no point in time in history than where we are set in 1910 in Cambridge that men have felt more certain about being right because you've got the British Empire at the height of everything. World War One is about to happen mm -hmm. and you've got this extremely exclusive, extremely classified <laughs> class system like society. Oh, yeah, sure. So when a, when a master is telling you something, it's like there's no doubt. Oh, completely. And <laughs> yeah. you even see that in the following scene where it's where it's it's cut to, you know, eight years later or whatever and he's in college and surrounded by this group of, um, you know, prep school wankers as I <laughs> kind of take them to be. But there's, they're all of these awful people and it's just, you know, men droning on and on and knowing nothing but just loving the sound of their own voice. And mm. we still see it today but it's very much, you're right, Andy, like a sign of that time where everyone just knew everything and, and this was a very particular world. But I did write down this one particular quote. I forget who, who it was, but someone says, what about saying nothing, you know, in response to these men saying, I'm going to comment on everything. And this awful man says, say nothing, horrible. It's just, you know, <laughs> that these people love their opinions so much. Mm. <laughs> so you have that direct yeah. contrast with with that happening. And then you know. even if you decide to drop it all and just, you know, lo lose all that Cambridge has to offer, you've still got a job in the city. Yeah, yeah. In finance. Yeah, exactly. You're going to be fine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's, yeah, the only thing there's really consequence for is homosexuality. Well, yeah, so well, you're not going to be fine. You're going to, well, yeah, emotionally maybe not. Mm. No, um, as the your film. status will not <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And all of that is in the film. You know, there's this, this backdrop of this, um, this uh, lord who's being charged for immorality um, and, you know, homosexual acts. And then this class element that's all throughout the film really comes to the fore in the second half where he has this sort of class-crossing relationship with the really incredibly attractive Scudder, yeah. the gamekeeper <laughs> on this, like, ginormous property that he was staying at. Played by Rupert Graves of yes. Sherlock fame. So attractive. He's so beautiful in this film. He's just, yeah, he's angelic. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting thing in this film where we, we're so conditioned now to seeing gym-toned bodies on film as soon as anyone takes their clothes off. They've been planning for that moment like months in advance. But here you've just got elegant men 
who look kind of normal and they're not even like photographed in you know in these particular ways that will make you know their muscles gleam or anything like that it's just it's just normal. It's just, I found it kind of almost revolutionary in a way. And mm. then it goes for the cinematography as well, which is kind of amazing, but never something that they'd like linger on sunsets or they tr- have to try to make anything look more than it is. It's just these mm. beautiful I mean, bones in these gorgeous houses. That <laughs> is one, and, you know, I don't abide it at all, but that is one of the criticisms of um, James Ivory, isn't it, as a director, is that he doesn't belabor any of those metaphorical um, images. Yeah, yeah. But, like, that's obviously where his power comes from because I think it's all in glances and small gestures exactly. where and the pain comes. That's what I loved about your statement in the, in the introduction was it is all about the quiet places where people are at the most vulnerable and actually the most interesting stuff happens. Yeah, and, I mean, obviously, you know, you brought it up already, Anders, but I just, you know, obviously we're going to talk about Call Me By Your Name in this discussion because I did find similarities between the films but obviously Call Me By Your Name written by James Ivory I remember when I first saw it last year that was immediately my thoughts kind of went to The Remains of the Day which is another film not about homosexuality but about repressed love and about people observing decorum rather than speaking their true feelings and that this film is all about that well not all about that but you know it's all there and so I did find myself even cinematically, you know, because there are no flourishes in this film, but there are moments where I found there to be linkages with not only Call Me By Your Name, but something like I Am Love, like the other Guadagnino films. Um, mm, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, you know, it's so, it's kind of quite resonant and Call Me By Your Name is also screening at Acme in this season, I think. It is. Yes, we'll mention that in, in the film diary. Yeah, so yeah. that's interesting and good programming. I think... I agree um, with what you said, Eloise, that I think really what's interesting about this is that it is, it's a serious melodrama of sorts in the Merchant Ivory tradition, but with this gay uh, relation, gay character at the centre of it, which is there's no moral judgement um, about his homosexuality whatsoever on behalf of the film, certainly on behalf of the characters and their social um, setting, but on behalf of the film, not. And I think that is what makes it so interesting to watch it because it is within this long-standing tradition of films about repression and romance that Merchant Ivory do. The only thing is that 99.9% of them are heterosexual romances. So this is it's a really interesting case of that very much within that tradition of filmmaking. Well, I yeah, think. I think it honours the text. I mean, E.M. Forster did famously yeah, exactly. write the book and it wasn't published until after he died in 1971 mm. and when he left that note pu- publishable, but is it worth it, written mm. on the front page? Oh, wow. Because he, was, he knew the, the cost, the, the social cost and the fact that the, the publishers yep. didn't even want, um, like, Ivory to film it. They thought it was one of his lesser works. They didn't want to have the attention to be drawn to one of his lesser works when there was all these other great things to publish, like Passage to India and these other books. Oh, wow, I didn't they know. They went on adapting. Yeah, so even right up until and the fact that it got released in in the mid '80s at the height of AIDS, you know, and to be able to see that sort of story at that time it was one of the most powerful times in the last few decades. They could have could have made that film. Yeah, and that I, makes so is, much sense. And totally. it is um, now being critically reappraised. Like I think it was sort the of novel. in danger. No, the film. Okay. Um, I think it was in danger of falling into. Not obscurity, but you know, a lesser Merchant Ivory film. Yeah, it always has been regarded as. I mean, it was yeah. very. It's been hard to find for quite a while. Yeah, until yeah. So this restoration is sort yeah. of an amazing opportunity to see what this really interesting film from um, the eighties. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful opportunity to see it. It's so interesting that you say that you know it was considered a, a somewhat of a lesser Merchant Ivory film because I watched last night the Europeans. They're a much earlier film. 
um, directed by Ivory and uh, Merchant Ivory film from 1979. And it's not exactly similar, but it has, it shares some of the same things, you know, Mm. about depicting a particular class of society and being very much about, I mean, in the end, I think things fail for this Lee Remick character because the, she doesn't say everything that she wants, but she can't, I'm not explaining it all correctly, but she basically doesn't want to say everything that she thinks because she's trying to fool people. But there's another character who she's trying to fool who doesn't say everything. And you could see very much there's like many glances where they look at each other and they know they know that both of them are not saying what they're meant to say. Mm. Mm. So, you know, that's all part of it. But I think that that was considered not so successful. And But I did write down this interesting quote because, you know, it's all about class and um, perception and trying to, I guess, pigeonhole people. But there's a line between Eugenia Young, uh, an exchange between Eugenia Young, played by Lee Remick, who's a um, European, born in France, I think, like lives in Vienna, and Robert Acton, played by Robin Ellis, who lives in New Hampshire. And she says, you Americans are very strange. You never ask anything outright. And Robert Acton says, we Americans are very polite. We don't like to tread on people's toes. And it's that idea, I mean, that kind of suggestion is sort of what we think of Brits being like, Mm. (laughs) but, you know, that idea of categorising people Mm. um, and being like, oh, oh, Americans are like this and this is why we cannot get along because we are from different worlds. It's not necessarily about class, but it's just about behaviour and acceptance and that's something that comes through in all James Ivory films. You know, isn't it interesting, like, at the end of Morris, it seems as though the fact that Scudder is from a different class is just as damaging yeah. as the fact that he's gay and that that is just as bad for Morris. Intersectional sectional consciousness, James <laughs> Ivory, good work. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, yeah, I agree. And that's what makes that ending interesting because, I mean, I take it to be quite a um, a, an uplifting and, and positive ending for, for his character and that relationship. But I have seen other responses where people say, well, what happens next? No, and it is different in the book, apparently. Okay. There, oh, there, it isn't a happy ending because there isn't really no happy ending you can have without you know, fast-forwarding to you know, 80 years later or something. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, it's interesting because in the past, if you wanted to write a story, a story like that, you would have to go to something like The Passionate Friends or Brief Encounter where mm. you'd have to turn that queer relationship into one of infidelity within marriage because it's, that's also social suicide. And, you know, it's going to cost you, you know, like we said with Lord Risley, um, which is actually a piece that was put, that isn't in the book, that was put in there by Ruth, Ruth Proud Jafala. Oh, she didn't write Morris. No, she didn't, but she did screen edits. She was working on her own TV series at the time and she came in. She she was like script edited that and said, I think we can make this better. And she put the Lord Risley, which is really, really big part of the story because that really shows you the stakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Underpins his exactly. whole relationship. That wasn't even there until she. Oh, I mean, that basically reverses the positions of Morris and Clive. From you know, Clive is the exactly. one who wants something, and Morris is the one who doesn't, and then it switches, and Clive yeah. mm. Clive gets terrified. So that's a really, really key part. Uh, what I found uh, really attractive about this, and I think other people who haven't seen much uh, Merchant Ivory stuff will appreciate, if they have seen The Crown. You can get the same idea that there's this confidence in society around them. So the buildings are really strong and beautiful. The sense of place. Everyone's mm-hmm. so confident in their social role. There's no. There's a whole bunch of stuff you don't need to question. So it's actually quite an effective canvas to put a story like that onto. And maybe people, you know, who have who might have heard of, you know, Merchant Ivory as being kind of stuffy, quiet, slow mm-hmm. things 
you know, if, you, if you're watching The Crown or you're appreciating anything like this where you're getting to have, see this sort of class confidence, even in something like, you know, Gossip Girl, there's that, there's that poshness, there's that class totally. quality to it, which, you know, empowers everything. So, you know, the, the stakes are actually quite high. Andy, no you're hurting me what? mentioning Gossip Girl in the same <laughs> breath as Merchant <laughs> Ivory. But the, the fact that the scandal there could break a family, say, totally. for example, if, even if it's melodramatic and, you know, completely f- impossible to believe. Or if you think Merchant Ivory is stuffy, you could just believe us and <laughs> know that it's not and that you absolutely need to watch it. Yes. And this is a really good place to start. I think. Absolutely, I think. Especially yeah. if you've got any time for Call Me By Your Name. Or Love Simon. Even, um, and also, I think that you should get to this piece written by Joanna Dimatia uh, for the monthly online. Friend of the show. I'm just going to read a, a line that she wrote, which I think is very fitting, particularly talking about modern cinema. She says, "Call me by your name" is nevertheless a fitting tribute to the Merchant Ivory brand, pushing what might be voiced under the surface so that it emerges like a silent confession in every move and gesture of its two leading men. Mm. And that applies to Morris as well. It's all in there. That's such a great essay. Yes. Do recommend reading it. Yeah. um, So what a terrific film. Yeah, definitely recommended. Mm. And Hugh Grant. Come on, we haven't even talked about his hair. Yeah, we haven't even talked about how gorgeous Hugh Grant is in this film. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful. I think it's his second ever feature. It was. He did a film called Privilege first. (laughs) (laughs) Unsurprising. Running theme there. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. There's that... First, where it's where it's cut to summer 1910, and it's after the first scene where we've met all of those wanky college boys. Um, Wank. They, <laughs> you would have been one of them. And discussing the big issues on their yeah, gondolas. In, in Latin. Whatever they are. It's yeah, a close Latin. up on Hugh Grant's face, and I think you know what it is fairly quickly. You know that he's resting on Morris's knee. But you can't quite tell at first. You just mm. know that he's kind of half asleep in close up resting on something white or, you know, a little off white. It's this <laughs> man's trousers. Sorry, just white. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's one of the whitest films in the world. It's very, very much so. But, you know, it's, it's of a time and it is of that particular class of people. Uh, and he's so gorgeous there. But I really love – I mean, that's the first moment where you see that they're both – kind of in love with each other. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you're right, just because it hadn't really been about him until that point and then, and well, then it's it a, was. It's a non-sexual sort of love affair, isn't it, really, that they have. I think you could, yes. you could argue that it is. Mm. It's a romance. Yeah. Well, it is. Well, it is a romance. Chris Clive says, let's not spoil this mm. yeah. with yeah. physicality. Anyway, I love Hugh Grant at any age, so this is obviously special, but, um, yeah. you know. Paddington Just 2. Paddington 2. Also, re- also yeah. recommend. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other thing I also really loved about this is the way that we move forward in time always associated with places. Like they mark the passage of time via terms at the beginning when they're at Cambridge and then when we start moving to other country houses and that sort of stuff, that's when we also move forward in time too. So there's this way that we kind of progress as they would mark time themselves. So it kind of glues you into it but then we shift away from the students into this the effect that these houses have where they end up becoming almost these theatrical places where the drama plays out. And you've got those gorgeous like allegories like closing windows, mm. and coming up ladders, you know, ascending from one class yes. to another, all this sort of stuff that's going on as well. It's really brilliantly put together. A lot to love. A lot to love. Go see it. Yep. Which brings us to this episode's Cultural Capital Film Diary. Morris screens until April 28th. Howard's End begins from April 27th and runs till, until May 8th. 
And Call Me By Your Name, a film we reviewed very positively multiple times last year, screened <laughs> until April 29th. A film we reviewed very positively last episode, I Am Not A Witch, is still running until May 7th. See it. Also at Acme, the soda jerk film Terra Nullius is playing daily and it also become, becomes highly recommended. The Spanish Film Festival is running until May 6th. Highlights include acclaimed coming-of-age dr- drama Summer 1993, The Tribe, and the Spanish-language version of Pixar's latest blockbuster, Coco, as well as modern classics um, such as Bigas Luna's Jamón Jamón and Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. The Irish Film Festival is screening at the Kino Cinema from April 26th until 28th. Highlights include the biopic of Galway singer Joe Heaney, Song of Granite, Alex Gibney's documentary No Stone Unturned about the Low Island Massacre. That man is super prolific. It's ridiculous. He just doesn't, yeah. I almost feel like he's a corporation (laughs) pumping out documentaries. Um, And Nick Ham's The Journey about a long car ride with staunch Protestant Ian Paisley and former IRA leader Martin McInnes. At the Astor, the David Lynch season continues with a screening of Blue Velvet on Monday the 23rd of April, Wild at Heart screens on April the 30th, and Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me on May 7th. Finally, there is a Michelangelo Antonioni double bill of Blow Up and Zabriskie Point on April 29th. Anders, we'll see you there. I will, yeah. Love Antonioni. Mm, me too. Um, Eloise, what's happening over at Cinematech? At Cinematech, this Wednesday, April 25th, so it's a public holiday for all Australians, uh, we are screening uh, the final of the Truffaut season, Francois Truffaut, screening The Wild Child and uh, Small Change. So it's kind of returning to, looking at um, Truffaut's, I guess, focus on children's narratives. And, you know, he became very famous for having a number of films that explored that angle and that part of society. It's a special occasion because these screenings are introduced by Professor Murray Pomerantz from Ryerson University in Canada. He's in town doing a few events and he's coming along to give a special introduction to that night, which will be good. But I also want to mention our follow-up screening on May 2nd, the following week. It's a one-off, not part of a season, um, and it's an evening that we've titled Girls in Uniform, Landmarks of Lesbian Cinema. So this is really, really exciting. We're screening Olivia Jacqueline Audrey's film from 1951, a French film, Muchaches de Uniform. I apologise <laughs> for being completely out of whack. I just love saying muchaches. Um, it's like a it. <laughs> 1951 uh, remake of the 1931, I want to say, Malkin in uniform, that German mm, classic. Right. Um, and so really excited to screen that, both on 35mm. Um, yeah, wow. super keen. It is the season to be queer. It is. <laughs> Are you okay? okay? You hit your head pretty hard. <laughs> That's me. That's me. Oh my God, do you see this? Yes. I'm beautiful! Comedian and writer Amy Schumer had a massive success with her debut feature film, Trainwreck, and this has given her a license to pursue projects that interest her, so it's bizarre that she should appear in this romantic comedy which isn't really especially romantic and not really a comedy. In I Feel Pretty, Schumer pays Renee Barrett, who is a self-obsessed website manager for a cosmetics company called Lily Leclerc, who, in a series of very unfunny scenes, is shown to be unhappy with her body. She's treated poorly by shop assistants, ignored by bartenders, and generally treated as a second-class citizen by the retail staff of Lower Manhattan. After watching the movie Big and tossing a coin into a fountain during a thunderstorm, and then sustaining a traumatic head injury, which is, of course, played for laughs, 
Renee believes herself to be extremely beautiful and therefore confident enough to ask out a guy she finds attractive, able to apply for the job of receptionist at Lily Leclerc, and pitch her ideas at board meetings where the elitist management are unsure how to launch their diffusion line, which is makeup aimed at poor people. There are so many problems with this film. If you've heard anything about I Feel Pretty, it's probably about its misjudged idea of comedy, its use of body shaming, and the disconnect between an attractive Hollywood star thinking that she's ugly. I haven't used the word normcore before, and from what I understand, it means someone who is privileged choosing to look like someone who doesn't care about how they look. But that's essentially what Schumer is doing here. Writers and directors Abby Cohen and Mark Silverstein do mind Schumer's perfectly normal body for laughs, and they also try to have a finale which sells the message, everyone is beautiful, and if you don't think you are, that's your problem, at the launch of a new line of cosmetics. The more I think about this film, the more it annoys me, but I should point out that it does have a tonally perfect and hilarious performance from Michelle Williams, but saying Michelle Williams is an amazing actress and the best thing about the movie is hardly news. One day somebody will make a supercut of Michelle Williams' scenes from I Feel Pretty, and I would check that out, but I would not recommend this film. Don't scream. Mm. Slowly turn around. Okay. Mm. I know you don't recognize me. I know that. Mm. But I am going to prove to you that I am your friend, your good friend. Hey, sluts. Oh, oh my God. Oh. Okay. Don't scream. No. No one, no one is screaming. Don't even make the noise you just made. Okay. Okay, now I know you don't recognize me. You're, you're thinking, who is this girl and why is she here? What was she doing covering our screaming ass mouths? You guys, it's me, Renee. So, Anders, you want to see A Quiet Place, which is a film Eloise and I have not got around to seeing yet, but yep. intend to. Should we? Uh, thank you for having me on your blockbuster filibuster. And you should not see A Quiet what? Place. Everyone else is telling me I should. It's a I, landmark horror film. No, no, not at all. I found the concept really fantastic. Like the central gimmick where they have to be quiet. Great. Um, sorry, did, should we just give the listeners a, pl- a back? Yes, sorry. So basically it's set in North America. This sort of uh, hardly explained alien attack thing has decimated the country and the aliens um, will kill you if they hear you. So you have to be very quiet. They sort of have these cra- – you see their ears. I didn't realise it was like supernatural. Yeah, I thought not, it, Okay, it's not I'm like less a, keen now. It's not like a killer or something. It's I these thought it alien. was like – yeah, okay. So John Krasinski and Emily Blunt uh, play husband and wife, as they are in real life, and they're on this sort of property um, out in the middle of nowhere and they've sort of muffled everything and they have two kids and – they basically have to be quiet because the aliens hear sound and they come running. So that's the central premise of the film. It's drummed into us repeatedly multiple, multiple times that you have to be quiet. By the fifth time, John Krasinski was like doing shh. I was like, <laughs> we get it, we get it, you have to be quiet. Um, so that kind of annoyed me. I thought it 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 did the anti-Jaws thing where it just showed too much of the right. creatures, okay. to, which I think detracted from 
the horror. And the, I, the title, A Quiet Place, I mean, you know, it says if you have to be quiet, strips back all sound, it suggests that like it's yeah. going to be an austere film otherwise and that you're not going to see too much of these creatures. Yeah, you know, see, that, I think it's being, I think it's not, it do, it's not like that at all. Right. It is quite comparatively quiet compared to most Hollywood films, I will give it that. But there are, it, there is a sort of undulation to its soundtrack. And you could tell because everyone in the audience just went straight for their popcorn as soon as, yeah. like, there was a bit of noise. Ah. You know, they thought that through. There is a, a sound pattern. General so it sound did make the cinema a quiet place. It, well, someone's phone went off and mm. there was incredibly irritating Was there lots of shushing? Behind me. No, there wasn't. Uh, there was. I, <laughs> I saw it at, like, one of these new Hoyts where every single seat is a recliner. <laughs> and um, I, recli- I decided to recline after the open <laughs> oh, credits. No. And it was just like... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it just made oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to everyone who was there. Um. Anyway, I know it was. It was like it was. Uh, I wouldn't even say it was fine. I thought it was really sort of below God. average. There were a couple of good jump scares. Emily Blunt is fabulous. John Krasinski, I didn't think was particularly compelling. Um. Although I did like his beard. The it just was a bit dumb. Despite right, that really? wonderful premise. Yeah, it is a really strong premise. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah. it was produced by Michael Bay. So. Was well, it? yeah, it was, actually. I, Hence I the audibly aliens. gasped when I saw that. Yeah, um, right. Again, I was the worst audience ever. I was like, oh, Michael Bay. And I was like, shut up. Uh, no. Um, yeah, it was Yeah, it was fine. But um, And also, there's just this, like... How about the kids? Millicent Simmons. Oh, you know what? I really She's hated her character. Wonderstruck. I actually despised her character. She, I, I mean, I know she's a kid, but she was like directly responsible for all of the bad things that happened in the movie. Like for some reason, they decided to make her the one who's responsible for every time something went wrong. It was her character, so I ended up kind of hating her. Well, but she's actually deaf. I'm, yeah. Well, she look her performance was great, and it incorporated the fact that she was deaf into this, this sort of central premise. So that was mm. interesting. Okay. Um, but again, you know, interesting ideas, poorly executed. I. St- Still think I'll see it and just as a good way in to discuss the Thornbury Picture House, which has just opened in Melbourne. Yes. Um, Brand new cinema. In an old garage and I'm pretty sure it used to be a, like a used furniture shop. I was up there in Thornbury about a year ago and I rec- recognised the building from those pictures. But um, they have it on their like coming soon list. Mm. There's no date yet but I thought, well, I may as well use that opportunity to go Check something out there. Yes. Um, yeah. And they're also screening Call By Your Name a few times, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and Yeah, this know. is a place we're going to be talking more about next episode when we've all had a chance to go there and... And talk. Oh, is it? All right. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> all right. Okay. And as you and I better um, get <laughs> yeah, on it. Well, they, they was showed a, the general today with a live score. That mm. got sold out. So That's cool. That yeah, but they thing. did announce that they were going to program that again. So I'm pretty keen. So, you know, the general I've seen so many times, but we'll always go and see it with an audience. Like a silent comedy and specifically Buster Keaton comedy mm. is like just exquisite with an audience. Yeah. yeah. Changes it completely. The yeah. best. Thing. I saw the bluegrass in all do a live score, and that was oh quite nice. So I'm very keen to see what these particular musicians have to do with it. Yeah, but another film that showed there recently was Death in Brunswick. Let's start at the beginning. That's Carl. Now the one thing that everyone agreed on was that Carl was slightly unusual. Stupid bastard! Make a decision. You're hopeless, Carl. Hopeless. When are you going to grow up? He would have been a better man if he'd finished university. But the one person who never put him down was Sophie. I'm Sophie. So it was obvious when Carl and Sophie got together. We all thought you were a puff. It had to be something special. What are you doing? Oh, nothing much. Just 
sitting around. When it all hits the fan... What's happened to you? Poor old Carl just forgets to duck. I fell over. Sam Neill, Zoe Caridis and John Clark. An award-winning performance, probably. John Ruane's 1991 dark comedy Death in Brunswick is this episode's Melbourne set movie. Sam Neill stars as Carl, a 34-year-old slacker who lives with his mum in a divey Brunswick house. He takes a job as a chef in a fairly dodgy Sydney Road bar where he meets and quickly falls for 19-year-old Greek-Australian barmaid Sophie, played by Zoe Caridas. Carl quickly finds himself inadvertently at the centre of an underworld brawl between his Turkish-Australian drug-dealing co-worker Mustafa and the Greek-Australians who employ them both. When Carl accidentally kills somebody, he enlists the help of his best mate Dave, played by John Clark, who sets about putting his grave-digging skills to the test. Carl is a fascinating protagonist and not particularly likeable. He's a sort of prototypical man-child, as several women comment to him during the film, When Will You Grow Up? Death in Brunswick follows in the fine tradition of simultaneously dark and quirky comedic filmmaking in this country. It's a portrait of many things, not the least the grungy backstreets of a Brunswick that has since totally transformed thanks to the forces of gentrification. It's a time capsule not just of a certain suburb at a certain time, but a certain style of filmmaking too. Andy, you know both Brunswick and its music scene very well. <laughs> what did you make of Death in Brunswick? Um, it is a really interesting time capsule. I think so much of this film relies on Sam Neill's charisma. Ostensibly, he's quite not a particularly likable person. Like he's a man child. He's not growing up. He's living with his mother, which is always seen in cinema as a pretty infantilized. Not living with his Sorry, mother. His mother. Her mother is living with him. She just comes to stay. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. And it's never done <laughs> in a way that's meant to empower a man, the masculine qualities of a man. In mm. his. So anyway, he's kind of seen as this fairly, perhaps not so uh, likable, but he's so charismatic and he's so great. And apparent, you know, as Zoe Caridi's character does say, you look a bit like Sting. At one point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he kind of does. Yeah. And he's really, really likable. He's great. He's um he's not quite the sort of cipher that you get in a lot of these cases where the, the drama is going on around somebody who gets t- born along into these unusual events that they don't really instigate. He does, you know, he kind of falls in love really, really quickly. He's obviously, you know, real romantic. He has a lot of trouble dealing with the idea of death and guilt and all those sorts of things. And this use of religious iconography that keeps recurring throughout the film is done mm. in quite a, a hilarious way to begin with. And then it becomes kind of a series. It's quite interesting the way they managed to do that. So... I think the source text, which was only released a few years before the film, seems to be very much capturing that late 80s sort of one of the most multicultural corners of, of the country. Yeah, the the book, which I haven't read, was written by Boyd Oxlade and he co-scripted the mm. screenplay as well. Um, and so he's in it. You write that religious imagery. I mean, it's all through and it, it's... It does get, a, you know, quite serious, I guess, towards the end, but is, again, kind of undercut in a black comedy fashion. Yeah. But, the, I mean, the opening shot is so excellent because it's this kind of off-kilter shot of just the road and this street in Brunswick where the Sam Neill character lives. And in the foreground is this car boot with, a, like, crusty brown Christmas tree shoved in the boot, you know. So And then mm. later on we see a couple of other Christmas trees. This yeah. is clearly just after Christmas season. And there's two presumably Greek women as immigrants who live in that suburb, like, carrying this other Christmas tree to the boot and all of this shit on the road. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, you know, very much there. And then later when he first has sex with Sophie, it's just hilarious because it's like this awkward setup, but then they have great sex, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. But the you just 
see the camera just goes to all of these icons of like this Greek Orthodox yeah. religion, yeah, just watching fantastic. them having sex and you can hear the soundtrack. It's such a simple move, but it's yeah. so fantastic. It's, it's so great, power, you know, and yeah, it's so you powerful. can... You can imagine that Sam Neill, well, not Sam Neill, that Carl, sorry, would be feeling like totally awkward about all of this happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That awkwardness I loved in this film. that And that reminded me um, a great deal, actually, of the sex scene in Love Serenade. <laughs> um, it was that. that similar daggy, like, because there's this sofa bed in the middle of the living room that they just, like, have to fumble with to, like, yeah. drag out. And I think that speaks to another thing that I thought about this film watching it was this it's a, a portrait of you know working class australia that's neither patronizing nor incredibly bleak as they mm. can sometimes be and it reminded me of love serenade in that exact same well, so, yeah i agree because uh, it's also this the idea of, of like a burgeoning relationship but the, you can't get society and family out of the face so they even in this film they're constantly being interrupted like at the cinema they're trying to kiss yeah, you know, she's got to be there looking after her younger brother who like starts teasing them. They go back, and I was so sure they're going to get interrupted again because you know, and she's still very much a product of a Greek Orthodox Australian family where the father is a you know a big power figure, and you have to meet his approval. And she encounters these other Greek power figures at work as well who. You know, of sexually harassing her on a regular basis. Yeah, I love it because it is about you know the Australian working class, and it's not patronising, but it's also very much about and kind of critical of, but also just warm towards this idea of immigration and immigrant culture, and um, that you know it's very much says that yes, there are differences that are not accepted, but it never gets too serious, and that. Australia is a multicultural society and that this is a growing, you know, a growing kind of place. Like there's that very funny moment where his mother answers the phone and says, oh, Carl, there's a girl on the phone. She sounds foreign, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and she doesn't want Carl to date a foreign girl and then her family doesn't want that either and then there are all of these other kind of you know Turkish immigrants Mm. here as well but you know it's never about the the comedy or the drama is never about that never emphasizes the difference it's always yeah you know it's always just kind of for a, a punchline not not at anyone's expense. Yeah. Well, it's what a lot of the dialogue I noticed, particularly in the early part, is about people wanting confirmation or affirmation or doubting something. Mm. They're just wanting to hear like their own words back said back to them in a way, which is which I thought was quite interesting because their actual courtship of Sophie and Carl yeah. uh, is is kind of quite quick and also that's quite a bit of uncertainty. Like she's very much leading the way, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really good dynamic and quite unusual, I think, for that sort of era of Australian film where you might get. A lot of you know dudes writing, you know, pushing, being the main, main protagonist in relationships. It's also I found interesting that it's a film about Melbourne and starring two Kiwis, uh-huh. and yeah. it's really yeah. about the mateship there. I mean, much more than even the romance. I mean, this sold as like a black comedy, but this not that. Yeah, it's, and it is quite funny, but also there's so much tension as well, which I was really surprised by. Actually, there was actually masterful ratch, mm. ratching up yeah, the tension definitely. when you get when you know the firebombing of the venue. There's I like that you call identity. it a, a dingy bar in Brunswick Anders yes. when, in fact, it was like the most infamous, <laughs> like, <laughs> violent place <laughs> in the inner suburbs in Melbourne for a particular time where a lot of gangland murders occurred. Yes. It was actually burnt down in the gangland wars. Yes. D- d- uh, yes. It's not a small you know? <laughs> new uh, bar, you're right. And Man. I find it, you know, quite funny that they use that as the venue for where all of these real, you know, mm. 
where all of these like you know fictional things occurred in that vein that yeah. was you know very good it's the dialogue i loved too i thought john clark's deadpan delivery oh God, as yeah. always totally unfazed so so funny um there's a scene where carl says oh i've met a girl and i'm in love um and he's like oh how long have you known her and she's <laughs> like uh he's like oh a day and he goes uh take it easy mate the last time you were in love you got married <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, that's funny. Yeah, it's it's actually a real shame because it makes me feel like we've missed out on so much quality dramatic acting from John Clark because he's so funny, but also just so great with the deadpan material. Like, yeah, and also yeah. Yvonne Lawley has pretty much no other credits. She played um his mm. mother, and she's fantastic with the deadpan delivery as well. Yeah, really, she's great too. wonderful stuff. And again, she did like two movies in her life. I really I want to talk about this film in the context of it being this very specific Australian comedy. And it's a very particular mode of Australian film that I hope that, you know, if we've got international listeners who want to seek it out, I highly recommend it. But you just need to know that it comes from a very specific, not only Australian humour, Australian sense of humour, but like an Australian place and time and a very Australian sense of ourselves. Like this comedy, comedy is like a suburban I want to say suburban gothic but like an inversion of that so it's like suburban gothic comedy where everything that happens in this film is because of this particular inadequacy provided by the Australian landscape in this case the Australian like suburbs everything that occurs even that opening shot of the garbage on the street and his bike tire not working and then towards the end they look at a newspaper and his mother says his mother reads the headline headless horror and some guy who turns out to be important in the film has been shoved in a dumpster his feet coming out but his head was he was decapitated anyway she says poor guy probably just went for a stroll doing nobody any harm you know and she doesn't know what he was actually doing he's actually quite important in the film but just that idea of like landscape that is out to get you this like the deranged mundane kind of area Mm, like that's very very funny to us um and it is you know if you put it in a different kind of generic context of horror it would be terrifying Mm. but for us in this particular case it's hilarious yeah, um, particularly when said by an elderly woman. Yeah, which is, you know, kind of also why this reminded you of Love Serenade because, you know, they're both in that context of yeah, like in that suburbs or small mode. town like inadequacy and, yeah, yeah which and is great. I agree. And, yeah, that dagginess in it too. I don't, There was one – I wrote down this one exchange which I just had to read out here. When um, Sophie's says um, – and apologies for language – she says, dad, my dad thinks I'm a slut – and um, Sam Neill's character says, Christ, Soph, this is Australia. <laughs> like, what, what, no worries. Like, what is there to worry about? So that, like, that Aussie uh, or Australian, that sort of um, idea of Australia as, an, as a, you know, easygoing kind of left of centre. Totally. You couldn't make it up. On. Yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of thing. Really interesting. I know. Yeah, and the really priest, this isn't specifically about Australia, but, you know, it, it's... It's on in that same vein, the priest at the end. So they go to church, Carl and his mum go to church and the priest is talking about people who've sinned and that everyone in here has sinned, but, you know, we'll, we won't be forgiven seven times, we'll be forgiven 77 times or whatever that typical thing is. But he, the examples he uses is like whether or not you've stolen our video recorders, <laughs> yeah. slept with our wives and husbands or assaulted us, like you'll be forgiven. It's just... It's yeah. it's so <laughs> stupid, but also but extremely he, pertinent to the lives of people living in Brunswick. Totally, totally. Yeah, 1991. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's great. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, petty crime kind of thing. Whereas mm. what we're seeing in the narrative is not petty crime. Yeah. Um, but it's treated in that kind of way. It is, isn't it? It is treated mm. in that way. That's what makes it such an interesting film. Yeah. I also wanted to give a shout out to um, Phil Judd's score. Oh, yeah. Which I thought was really good. Oh, it's good, isn't yeah, it? He yeah. He was the next member of Split Ends and mm-hmm. co-wrote the song Counting the Beat that's been used in about 45,000 mm. ads. Um, and also at one point, Carla singing I Got You by Split Ends while looking in the mirror, which oh. I thought was a nice touch. I also want to give a shout out to um, Howling 3, the marsupials. Oh, good call. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Which they go and see at the now defunct West Coburg Progress Cinema, which I tweeted about as being hilarious because it's like a ridiculous film and so bad, but I love all of the, you know, makeup and everything. Yeah. Particular part of, you know, the 70s exploitation or 80s exploitation cinema in Australia. But we kind of had watched some of it in class last week, which is why it was on my on my oh, radar. Wow. But I tweeted about it as in like, lol, how hilarious is this that they go and see Howling 3, the marsupials, kind of another inadequate Australian film, which is semi, I think maybe meant to be some kind of sequel to The Howling, but it's just not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but someone said that it was done as a joke because Howling 3 never actually got a cinema release in Australia. Oh, right. Nice one. So it yeah. was kind of maybe I, a shout out. Or, well, I love that Soph said she's already seen it three times. Oh, yeah. With they're leaving the cinema. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Why? Well, it's a kind of a beautiful version of Brunswick then where everybody goes to see Ozploitation <laughs> yeah. cinema. And yeah, they, and they hang out. And they bring out their families. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, and there's a queue running out the door yeah. for this film. Yeah, on a, just on a regular weekday yeah. kind of thing. Totally. Oh, it is school holidays as those men who are destroying, or those oh, boys who are destroying right. a plant. I know, I love that too. They're dripping out a tree from a from some public property and Carl says, oh, boys, stop doing that. You're meant to be in school. They say it's school holidays. He's like, all right. And he kind of walks on and then he's like, oh, maybe they're still doing something. Or you can see this look on his face. Maybe I should still stop. And he's like, nah. <laughs> he's like honestly i think sam neill's performance is just yes, no perfect, perfect. Yeah. it's it really so is, it really makes this film good and it's so funny to think that two years later he did the piano <laughs> yeah and Jurassic you know Park. yeah yeah and in Jurassic both Park, in the one yeah. year but that he just like even in the piano he looks so much older mm. and so much i mean he's you know he's uptight <laughs> in that film you know completely the opposite i mean i think he was playing against type in this film to some extent I mean, yeah. I think I read that somewhere that he was doing this particularly and because he was mates with John Clark as well. Yeah, of course, yeah. Carl? Carl, where are you? Dave. Dave, I knew you'd come. I knew you would. Jesus Christ, old mate, are you all right? Can we have some light in here? No. What's going on? Dave. Look in the corner. Cool Under the potatoes. Shit, who's this? There's this great bit towards the end where um, Carl is like acting kind of like he's had this big revelation in the church and he's kind of acting like he's had a lobotomy and he's being really nice to his mum all of a sudden. Anyway, he's like, I'll oh, put some of your favourite music on, mum, and she says thanks and he holds up a Death in Venice record. <laughs> and I just yeah. love it because it's kind of, you know, at the end of the movie you're like, oh, I get it, this whole movie is just a joke. How Australian is our sense of humour that this we're taking this grand film title, Death in Venice, and just pretending that we can be as yeah. cool. <laughs> in Brunswick. <laughs> anyway. Brunswick. Yeah, what a great film. Yeah, so Death in Brunswick is available on DVD via Umbrella Entertainment and may be screening again soon at the Fonary Picture You House. can also stream it on Umbrella Online. Oh, thank you. Do not know. 
And that brings us to the end of episode 47 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, well, why not get extra thanks from us by throwing some stars our way on iTunes? That would be great. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast or on Twitter at The Cult Capital Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Low Ross. And we think you're great. Thank you.